I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. And, and welcome, welcome to, to School of Movies. No Time to Die. Why would I betray you? We all have our secrets. We just didn't get to yours yet. The world is arming faster than we can respond. Where's 007? I need a favor, brother. You're the only one I trust for this. The world's moved on, Commander Bond. You were double O. Two years. So stay in your lane. You get in my way. I will put a bullet in your knee. I had not planned to do this one so soon, but I went in knowing nothing about it beyond just what we could see in the trailer, and I came out shaken and stirred. The original plan had been to do a Patreon-exclusive after-school club and then come back to it for a full show later on. But on the way home, I sent Sharon a hearty suggestion that she see it herself, knowing similarly nothing, and then we could record a show, a full main event episode and neither of us would know the other's exact thoughts making for a fascinating and rare frisson surrounding this landmark bond film i still don't know and you don't know mine also having covered the beginning with casino royale and quantum of solace in the past few weeks and re-releasing our 2015 shows on skyfall and spectre on the main feed it felt right and proper to finish off the quintet now we've all waited long enough if you are similarly in the dark as to what happens, that's the ideal way to watch this movie. So maybe pause the show here and go see it if you're safely able to. Or if you can't, or if you won't, just listen on and we'll take you through it. Full spoilers after the music. Before we start, let's talk about reassessing Spectre, because just like Quantum of Solace, I re-edited that film to make it tighter, to iron out a few, a lot of that goofy Roger Moore era stuff, and the largely unfunny bits of humour. 
Through how I positioned the action, Bond feels less invincible and Madeline feels like she's being once again overwhelmed by this dangerous world of murderous espionage. I even switched out the smug brass at the end for a somber female cover version of We Have All the Time in the World as she and James drive off. Before we talk about No Time to Die, what was the experience of watching the Redux version of Spectre for you recently? I think the the part that really stood out for me was the way you'd re-edited the escape scene. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah. This is uh, just after Bond has been tortured with that drill machine. Uh, I cut out all of the sound as it goes da 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 and he runs around the compound shooting people just kind of like blah blah shooting on even as uh on trailer said on agent mode and what i did was pull out the sound and make and just sort of kind of bring in this ringing sound like that when the grenade goes off it feels like everything go- goes out of the world so madeline is kind of witness to bond massacring a bunch of guys and she's like what am I getting myself into again at this point? Yeah. And that, I think, <clears throat> is probably the most significant thing that you did with Spectre that made me feel like, okay, that now deserves a place as a preliminary to this film. Mm. Okay. And we've discussed before that occasionally you will get something that turns up in a series or a franchise that makes other films in that series better by retrospect. Is Spectre now a little bit better than it was yesterday? A little bit. A little bit. There is still a lot wrong with Spectre that this couldn't fix. But honestly, the bulk of it is to do with Blofeld. And because Blofeld is so sparse in this, his... I don't want to use the term aura, but it's his presence presence that's the important thing, not the man himself. And so the elements of Blofeld's actions, plan, etc., Inspector, that were frankly ridiculous, still are and still can be. It doesn't matter. And there is... my, My focus on No Time to Die is a very specific one and I will explain why it's superior to films that lean very heavily on that whole here's the villain's plan here's the exciting plane chase etc there is quite a bit of die another day in this which sounds terrible but in a minor capacity in No Time to Die. Back in 2002, Eon were very keen for us not to forget how much of a heritage Bond has, so they called back to a lot of the previous entries in the series for that 20th film. They're like, sort of, hey, remember this? Mm. In this Bond? That's a very good point. I would say the difference here is it's being done by people with skill, Mm. and therefore you don't notice. You get the impact, but you don't get the... It's not having an air horn honked over it. Honk. Mm. Remember that shoe from from Russia with Love? Remember the jetpack from Thunderball? It's right there. It's really interesting as well that you uh, invoke... No, uh, die another day because Jinx was who sprang to mind as an as a poor comparison to some of the characters in this. But again, we'll come back to that. That was exactly what I was thinking of mm. as well. 
And obviously, Die Another Day is not the first Bond film to uh, to go. Hey, remember that? There, there are other Bond movies where, during the opening sequence, like during the Roger Moore era, they yeah. go, "Hey, remember this Bond film?" It's a film? huge part of it. It's a huge part of the Bond series. Is remember this chain that came before it? But honestly, I think this is why it frustrates me so much when we watch some of the older ones. And it will remind you of jetpacks and fancy watches, mm. music and... Cars. Cars, but it won't let you get an emotional grip on characters who resurface. And that's what this did in spades. There's no... Previously, there was no real growth. There were like little nods here and there. For your eyes only, uh, asks uh, Bond, you know, that, oh no, wait, it's uh, the spy who loved me, um, Agent Triple X, a, uh, a spy who's uh, Russian and female, um, says, uh, James Bond married once and Roger Moore's like, shut up. Yeah, that's one of the few bits of like serious acting Moore does in his run. I actually think that they were starting to get, they were starting to understand what it needed when they reintroduced some of the older characters for Skyfall mm -hmm. and then obviously expanded on the perspective but they, they seemed to have missed up until now what the reason to have those old favourites there was yeah and uh, yeah there's there's more subtle references in this film if you can spot the life raft from the end of The Spy Who Loved Me then great but it doesn't go honk Remember that? It's just that 007's in it, and like, if you know it, you know it. If not, then he's in a life raft. The remote mines from Goldeneye, like, uh, at the end, it was like... With the watch. Or the uh, referencing of foxglove flowers that can make your heart stop. This film does not mention Foxglove's other name, Digitalis, which is what Craig's Bond was poisoned with in Casino Royale, only to be saved by Vesper Lind. There are fleeting comparisons with Die Another Day in terms of Bond meeting his match in a new female agent. They always say that, and it's so rarely true. Yeah. But sometimes it is, and I will explain why. And feeling somewhat outmoded. But, like, usually the bent of the film is, he's not outmoded, he's who you came here to see. This is just giving the girls, throwing the girls a bone. There are more fleeting ties to License to Kill as well, uh, including what happens to Felix and how James reacts to that. But the film is not only trying to directly and overtly both evoke and subvert on Her Majesty's Secret Service, a strange anomaly of a movie beloved by Bond fans, not seen by a lot of just regular cinema audiences. It's the one-off appearance of George Lazenby. Uh, he was in between Connery and Moore in 1969, and it's the one where Bond finally falls in love and settles down. Uh, that, that one starts with, hey, remember all these Connery films that came in the past? Those all happened to this same guy. Although, like... He and Blofeld meet and chat, and at no point does Blofeld go, hang on a minute, you're literally James Bond. I fired a gun at you in the last movie. I was standing not this close to you. Like, we've met. That never comes up in On Her Majesty's Secret Service. But it's the one, uh, well, like I said, where Bond fa uh, falls in love. And where Blofeld revenge kills his new bride, Tracy, precipitating the most heartbreaking scene in the series up until Casino Royale. Bond goes soft and vulnerable as the new life that had just opened up for him is violently closed off. 
he was leaving behind being a secret agent, same as at the end of Spectre. That's why I played a uh, somber version of We Have All the Time in the World, because I was like, this isn't going to last. We've got another film coming up. Mm-hmm. At the time, it felt like that might be his last... Like, um, they hadn't negotiated the fifth film. And Daniel Craig said at the time, I, I don't want to do another Bond. I, want, I would rather slip my wrists. Very glad he didn't. Very glad he did this one. I'm very glad Spectre wasn't his Die Another Day. Yeah. That vulnerability always seems to go hand in hand with him deciding that he doesn't want to do this anymore. He actually comes to that conclusion in Casino Royale. Mm. Uh, yeah, so very simple. Like, whatever I am, I'm yours to Vesper Lind. I'm like hanging I up being... I can't be loyal to the Secret Service anymore. A double O agent just, you know, when I've just begun. Yeah. It's devastating and powerful in uh, on Her Majesty's Secret Service. Still to this day, we watched it the other night so that I could prime Sharon. Are you glad I showed it to you just so Very you could much so. have a couple of those points of reference in your head? Yeah. Okay. And this movie, while not a remake, doesn't only tip its hat to that film, it brings back in the potentially calamitous grand-scale biological warfare plot. It directly re-delivers the same car, the Aston Martin DBS, very deliberately driven throughout that film. And that car is key in the climax. There is another deadly atomizer given to a woman that... And No Time To Die spotlights the music, Louis Armstrong's We Have All The Time In The World, along with the directly quoted and recontextualized lines of dialogue connected with that song. And it gives the audience that rare, devastating conclusion. We will hold back on talking about the details of that for Act 3, but we're going to begin with not one, but two cold opens to this extremely long, epic bond. And I felt the length of it this time. It was very long. Both of these prologues are now key to what happens later, meaning Craig never got that customary Bond unrelated mini movie. I was listening to uh, uh, We Hate Movies talking about Die Another Day uh, earlier today on my iPod, and they were complaining about how in Die Another Day the uh, cold open actually has um, a, a lot of bearing on the uh, later film. And I was like, actually thinking about it, only Tomorrow Never Dies has done the classic this has in no way relevance to the later film since Roger Moore's View to a Kill. The Dalton ones, both those cold opens impact on the film. All the other Brosnan ones, the other three, and all the Craig ones, those play into the main film. The the era of, ah, oh, remember James Bond? He was doing a thing and now he's not. I think that's done and I think that's a good thing because it means it's a more involved Bond and what he does matters the hallmark of the earlier bonds and i include the connery ones in this uh, for all that people shocking. say simply shocking connery was the best bond fine if he's your bond that's okay <laughs> but those films are not particularly dramatically great the they don't contain the, the, the nourishing stuff that Sharon and I really get our teeth exactly. into. Exactly. We're not doing Goldfinger for a main the show. The women are very disposable. The villains are interchangeable. It's it's not... It's, it's a fun time at the movies rather than being anything that's really engaging story-wise. Something I mentioned to you the other day, um, a lot of people watch a Bond marathon. They, they watch all... 20, 21, 22, 23, 24. I would forget and, which one I was on. And now 25 Bond films all in a row in the run-up to a new Bond movie. That is not what they were designed 
to do. Mm. When they were making like the ninth Bond film, they weren't thinking, oh yeah, and everyone can watch these on the new videotape system. No home cinema. No, like they were designed to be a formula re-delivered every couple of years in everyone come along to this Bond film, we'll give you what you want, and then you go home happy. Not a body of work. Like it's not the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And people say, uh, for example, um, Never Say Never Again, the last Connery film, the non-Eon, non-Broccoli one, is not canon. What is canon at this stage? Absolutely. What what canon is there here that we can follow? This, the James Bond played by Daniel Craig, is clearly not the same James Bond played by, certainly not Mm. Connery or or any of the ones leading up to this. Well, yeah. Obviously, that the the previous Bond was in like a key uh, spy during the Cold War, and you can kind of loosely wave a hand at Bond spy was Cold War, etc. But I don't see why you should take Never Say Never Again off the table because no, it's not because Eon. The others are. And just say, well, uh, Timothy Dalton, who's much younger than Roger Moore, yeah. is the same guy. It makes as much sense for it to be part of the history of. Mm. of MI6 as anything yeah. else. I mean, that's the only one. I'm not putting the the, uh, the the slapstick Casino Royale on the table and going, well, it says James Bond, so it's a James <laughs> so Bond that's film. That's got to be. Anything. This definitely happened. But I think the fact that in this they put the previous M's on the wall, they have portraits of the old M's in the hallway. Ah. And to me... As far as I'm concerned, and people can tell me this is not the case, <sighs> no, I don't No, don't care. go back to it. I know what you're going to say. Okay, I won't say You're going to say they're all the same. Like, it's it, the name James Bond is a code name or well, something. No, okay, all right. The name, Everything fine, whatever. Happened. Dispose of that. But the 007 number clearly passes from person to person. Yeah. The continuity in this is that Daniel Craig's James Bond was a 00 agent in 2006 it was dated very specifically on vesper's grave yeah uh, and then when he retired that double o number was given to a new agent three years after he left but yeah uh at this stage he has now quit mi6 but we don't start with him we start with a scenario talked about by madeline inspector about how um, she uh, she says men came to the uh, the house when her father was away and they didn't know that there was a, a gun under the uh, kitchen in the kitchen cabinet next to the bleach and they very specifically got the kid to use the bleach on her mother's spilled wine just to remind you of all of these little bits and then she uses that gun on the main villain of this film, Lucifer Safin, a man who comes in to to kill her mother as a revenge killing. For her father, Mr. White, the guy that Bond shoots at the end of Casino Royale in the leg and then puts in the boot and then has a driving action sequence at the beginning of Quantum of Solace, almost interrogates for a few minutes and then who gets seemingly shot and then gets away at the in Quantum of Solace and then turns up again with poisoning Inspector and dies, kind of turfing care of Madeline over to Bond in the same scene. You're protecting someone. Your wife. (laughs) She left long ago. Your son. Your daughter. 
You won't find her. She's clever. She's smarter than me. She knows how to hide. I can protect her if you tell me where he is. <laughs> I can keep her alive. Yeah. You have my word. Your word? The word of an assassin? You're a kite dancing in a hurricane, Mr. Bond. Rami Malek's only actually four years older than I know. Leia I, Sadu. I was like, that is that his father? Rami Malek's not that old. <laughs> like, uh, you know, he's got this horrendously scarred face, and they they give him this really frightening kabuki mask to wear. But I had a really hard time believing that this guy who looks old as fuck in the flashback is the same guy. I thought it was going to reveal I have a de-aging something or other. Yeah. Well, the fact that the... It kind of pieces together the fact that he was a young boy when the, the tragedy happened to yeah. his family. Mm. Oh, the assassination. It's the fact that he's tragedy. wheezing and walking with a limp that makes him seem older than he probably was exactly. at that point. Like, yeah. he's actually he's really going to be a... masks, so you can't yeah. see much of his face. He's and more of a teenager. I, yeah, I... I could believe, if Madeline at that point was about 12 or so, yeah. I could believe him as about 17. Okay. And it's actually more effective to have him in that mask than to de-age him. Yes. Correct. Yeah. It's a really tense scene as well. The, um, the like, whole you, you thing know is she's... tense. I will say this. It's a long-ass film, but I was... Hulk only needed one part of seat. The, the edge. edge. Oh, and you went too. Okay. I was asking you to hold it back and tell us about it now because you yes. finally went to go to the Everyman. Finally went to the Everyman. The Everyman, which is like yes. our equivalent of the Alamo Draft House in Lincoln, only yes. one assumes the staff are treated well. Uh, I would certainly hope so. Okay. It's, it's Unlike in our previous uh, cinema, the one that was the Ritz previously, where the staff were treated horrendously. Appallingly, yes, absolutely. And for long months at a time, we're not paid. Yeah. But anyway, that's okay. So the Everyman. So the Everyman is the it's the newest cinema that's opened in Lincoln and I've been wanting to go to just try it out for ages but it is pricey. Mm. It is a It was going to be like 50 quid for us to see In the Heights. Yeah. Together with Willow. The, I think the tickets like the Odeon does now. I think the ticket prices do vary depending on how new a film is mm. and and how big it's likely to be etc. But for this Alex had obviously already seen No Time to Die at the Odeon on my limitless card. Yeah. And when I checked the ticket prices, there was only about four quid difference between the mm. Odeon and the Everyman. So I thought, best opportunity to give it a try Splash out. Splash out. Let's go for it. And I have to say, it's gorgeous. Inside, it's so lovely. You go in and it's like they've got this lobby with sofas and cinema books where the lift is and the stairs. And you go up and you go through like a bar restaurant type place. It, it's effectively, it is a restaurant with a cinema upstairs mm. or a cinema in back. And, but unlike the Wildwood in town, which just has one screen. Mm. And it's Attached actually, to a restaurant. And it's actually in the restaurant. You're sitting at tables eating your meal as you're watching the movie. And they had to close the restaurant. At least as far as I'm aware it is. 
But the uh, the everyman, like, if you go, want to go and not have food, that's fine. Mm. I didn't have anything extra. Mm. But the, the screenings itself, it's rows of little two-seater sofas with occasional armchairs in between them for people who mm. are there on their own or people who are there in groups of three. Did you order an armchair? I had, yeah, I just had a chair and... But you only needed the edge. Indeed. <laughs> But the the screening was, I would say, it's about the same size as an Odeon medium, maybe small, but the, but it's it's very well laid out. The seats are so incredibly comfortable. You've got cushions and armrests, and there's little tables in between each one, so that if you do order drinks, uh, you can have something to put them on. There's little sort of footrests where you can also put used cups and things. It's it's just it is beautiful. Did anybody talk? Yes. Motherfucker! But, but, now this, no, 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 this is what I was going to get to. So, the, the screen that I was in was full. Sold out. Whoa. Most of the screenings for today were sold out. Whoa. But the, they're so well spaced that you didn't feel cramped. I didn't feel at all crammed in. Um, there's a there's a good sort of meter between you and the people in mm. front. There's loads of leg room because the staff have to be able to get down with your drinks and things. It's effectively table service at your seat. You go in, you sit down, and as the ads are playing and the trailers are playing, they come round to all the, the seats and ask you if you want to order anything, and then they'll bring it to you before the movie starts. And it's... The way it's set out, it is entirely possible that people were whispering to each other and playing on their mobile phones. But, uh, be, but uh, because um, the only reason I say that is because of the way it's laid out, I couldn't see anybody doing it. Right. So it it made no difference to me whether they were or not. I suspect they probably weren't though, because everybody was just spellbound and and not really chatting amongst themselves. The couple next to me. The only reason that I could see and hear them was because they were sat right next to me. If they'd been anywhere else in the cinema, like I said, I wouldn't have known because right. of how the seats are set out. But they did occasionally reach for their phones and they did occasionally whisper to each other. But the tone of the room is such that you almost feel like you have to be surreptitious about it. Unlike the Odeon, where everybody is openly scrolling. I'm bored, da 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 may as well be at home. Yeah, exactly. And it's entirely possible, by the way, that they had their phones out because you can order more drinks and things through the app. Right. But the the when the film started, after the trailers, the staff were also kind of lined up down one side and a guy came out to the front and did a little bit, this is the new Bond film, here's some factoids about the new Bond film. Everybody enjoy the movie, we'll be around if you want to order anything else. You very much have this feeling that you are being tended to. Right. You're not just herded into a room and then left to your own devices. Right. And I think that really gives it that atmosphere of, it's so comfy, it almost feels like your living room, but it feels like a living room full of people who are wanting to watch a movie. Okay. Okay. And well, it was very different. nice, and I enjoyed it thoroughly. I don't know if I'd be willing to pay full price for every new film that came out, mm. but they do do membership options, so they may be something that's worth looking at further down the line. Okay. But it was really lovely, and I would definitely like to go there on a full-on date night at some point and actually have food and drinks and everything. Oh. Okay, so the second prologue is what happens after Spectre. They... Uh, get to Greece and the Acropolis. They drive there in their uh, Aston Martin DB5, and it's just sort of round these 
sort of like sweeping mountain roads. And I'm like, is that a reference to Goldeneye? And then obviously that turned out to be, no, that's this. That's the road. That's the road. At the end of Honor Majesty's Secret Service. Yeah. Except they are driving the other way. Right. Nice. So they're there because Bond has to pay his respects to Vesper. It's symbolically he's letting her go and he's letting go of the anger and paranoia that came with Vesper. Because after her death, obviously, he went through Quantum of Solace, but he came out the other side still not healthy, mm. like, you know, able to do his job as a double O agent, but not a decent, solid, straightforward human being who can just function with other people. Mm. They seem to be very much in love, and they're uh, canoodling in the hotel room, and, and Bond goes off to uh, pay his respects to Vesper, and she's encouraging of this. It was from the sounds of things, it was her idea. And I think if you, although the others aren't referenced explicitly, apart from M, whose picture who turns up on the wall later on, mm-hmm. the the implication seemed to me to be that interesting over the how last... it doesn't matter what Mallory does, he's still not M to no, you. No, he's not. He's not <laughs> M is Judy Dench, and that will never change. All right then. Um, <laughs> well, she's been my M since Goldeneye. Yeah, so of course. The, the implication to me seemed to be that over the last few films, this Bond, Daniel Craig, has been gradually, through his interactions and relationships with the women who have been the focal points of each movie, has been letting go of various aspects of what happened with Vesper. Mm. So with... Uh, in Quantum of Solace, he got to observe firsthand this is what obsessive re- desire for revenge will do. And so he was able to kind of work through that. Mm. And then with Skyfall and with everything that happened with M, he was able to work through the this is an organisation that will use you and make you do things that you don't necessarily want to do because it suits them. He also saw the obsession in Silver and yes. thought, I probably better not do that either. Exactly, yeah. And um, with... Mommy was very bad. Indeed. And obviously Spectre was the initiation of his, his relationship with Madeline. Yeah. But this That's is the one the... where he actually really let himself fall in love. Yeah, absolutely. And this is like the, okay, you've, you've worked out some of the incredibly painful offshoots of what happened with Vesper. Now you have to address hmm. Vesper herself. I was very gratified because it actually... It, Spectre caught us by surprise. We did not expect to not like it. We had seen three uh, up-and-down films, but three pretty much stable, solid, great uh, Daniel Craig Bonds. And then we were watching Spectre, and then suddenly, like, around about halfway through, I was like, hang is on. Is this bad? Is this, is this a bad film? <laughs> And it crept up on us, and when we were leaving, we were like, oh my god, Like that, so much of that was just not great. Mm. So watching this, knowing nothing, I was like, oh, it actually fits with what Sharon and I have been saying about building a character. Exactly, exactly. And I think what we've said in the past about, I, I, off the top of my head, I can't remember what was in our Spectre show, so but this may be repeating it. Okay. But ultimately, one of the things about Spectre that we have certainly discussed in the interim is the fact that they set Blofeld up as this in- integral part of Bond's life but we only know any of that because he shows us it all with newspaper clippings. There is literally nothing prior to this point that gives us any sense of history, family, connection, bonds, if you will, between these two people. And they did not sell it, Inspector. Exactly. Here, they sell it. Not his relationship with Blofeld, 
but his relationships and his connections with everyone, with everyone else. else. Right. And that became, for me, the point. It's not the cars. It's not the explosions. It's not the villain's plan. The villain's plan is a terrible one, and we'll get to that. Mm. And it, it does actually reflect the one from Honor Majesty's Secret Service, which like is I another said. reason why I was very glad that you got me to watch that first. But the focal point of this is the connections between Bond and everybody around him. Not just the ones we're throwing at you for this movie, but the ones that have been building over the last four. And it's like they took everything that the writers of Spectre had completely asked up and went, give it here. We'll come to that in a minute. Um, when, as Bond's paying his respects to Vespa, the grave explodes, giving him that... Like tinnitus, mm. um, everything's muffled, yeah. including the music when it kicks in. I noticed yeah. Hans Zimmer on the music for this one. Wonderful job, by the way. Well, that explains a lot. Yeah, <laughs> um, there there were times when he was bringing back old themes, mm -hmm. but he used them sparingly, yeah. and there there was real emotional underpinning in yeah. all of this and it just felt like it feels like when you when you get Hans Zimmer it's like let's not fuck around we want to directly get Absolutely. to the audience's hearts but on there this. are there are echoes of all the time in the world obviously which you've already mentioned Madeline's theme yeah. has become uh, a rendition of the theme tune from Spectre yeah uh, the, there were uh, elements of the On Her Majesty's Secret Service and Vesper's theme obviously played here. Yes. But here's the thing. Bond pretty much gets a, uh, a call on his mobile from Blofeld, or it might have been on Madeline's it's mobile. It's on Madeline's Madeline's phone. going, yeah. well done, Madeline. You got him. Oh, you sick burned him. And Madeline's like, this is bullshit. I didn't do anything. And she's really upset. Craig really sells. Nope, 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 nope. Not doing this again. Nope, can't trust you. Nope, off you go. Fuck off. Fuck off, fuck off out of my life. And he shoves her on a train. This is after a really quite, like that bit when they're like being shot at inside the DB5. I was like, yes, there's that bit. And he's waiting and waiting. And then he's going to pull out the guns. And then I realized, oh no, it's really good. This scene's really good. It's so tense. Because not will the windshield hold, He's testing her. Yes, He's absolutely. glaring at her the whole time going, at some point she's going to break and say, I want out of this! Like, because she knew they were going to get attacked. He's watching her like a fucking hawk the way he does with that, that bird of prey look of his. He's using that attack to his advantage as a way of intimidating her. Yeah. It's really cruel, but it's he's trying to get information and the information is inconclusive and in the end he just decides, fuck it, and he kills everybody with his machine guns, blah, 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 blah. He's James Bond. And then puts her on a train. And, you know, she grabs her belly at that point. I'm like, okay, that's cinematic language. They've had sex. I get it. And what? I did not get that in that moment. I got it. That, to me, was like, she feels like oh my she's God, been I punched feel... in the gut. No, 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 no. Just... That's not what okay. that means. All right. That means something there else. Is, just for the record, by the way, right-wing politicians notwithstanding, there is absolutely no way she would have known at that point. No. But the film knew. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'll give you that. And, uh, and I knew because the film told me. Mm. And... Also, can I just make one tiny point? Yeah. Madeline's mobile phone. Mm-hmm. Is it a flip phone? It's No, no, no. It's not a flip phone, but it's not far off. 
It's like a Nokia 33310, slightly posher Listen, and more rounded. some of us appreciate the classics. And I'm sat there going, what friggin' year is this? <laughs> it's, it's 2016. iPhone smartphones were a thing. 2000 and... I think 2015, because this was intended to come out in 2020. In 2020 yeah. There is then a five-year ellipses. Yes, there is. The, uh, one of the things that's so great about this prologue is we also don't know. We're just there with Craig's Bond going, did she? Didn't she? Like, we've seen so many women go all shifty-eyed and, like, betray Bond. Mm. And we've, like, it's very rare that a woman will be accused of that and actually not, and that they won't resolve it in a few minutes. Yeah. And that actually is quite a nifty setup for one of my observations about Bond women, generally speaking. Mm -hmm. I refuse to call them Bond girls, but Bond women, generally. So there's, there's different levels of Bond women, and the ones that make me go, oh, for fuck's sake, they're doing this again, are the ones that are totally disposable. They have no past, they have no future, they are there to, in the moment, be porked. And that's it. Really. <sighs> Jane Seymour, you are here to be porked. Well, no, that's, that's the next one You up. lovely, dignified lady. That's, that's the next level up. That's the women who are actually... Oh, so you mean Plenty O'Toole? Yeah. Oh, Plenty O'Toole was there to be porked and then killed. Yes, exactly. And usually they are killed. Yes, that's why they have no future. Um, the next also, their I'm... names are funny. Yeah, usually single entendres. Mandy Big Tits. <laughs> oh, God. But the next one up is the women who have a... They have a name-dropped past, as in somebody will make reference to where they came from. Something happened to this person before they were being filmed. But, but it's not really discussed in any great detail. It's just, you know, she didn't emerge fully formed from the forehead of the writers. Um, <laughs> they do have some passing engagement with the plot, usually because they're a sidekick of the villain or something like that. Again... Nine times out of ten, they're going to be dead by the end. Dame Diana Rigg in passing engagement with the plot. <laughs> Don't you keep jumping a level ahead? Passing engagement. <laughs> and but the the ones that actually make me go, oh, they're really doing something with this one. Now this is the this is what they keep blushingly groping for when they go. Bond's finally met his match. That's bollocks. And Jinx was not this at all because Jinx had no past. No future. She did have a passing engagement with the plot, but only very passingly. Mostly she was just there to be there. They were going to do a spin-off, but Halle Berry was rubbish in that she film. She was so they against terrible. It. That's not saying Halle Berry is rubbish. No. That's saying the character, the character of Jinx is rubbish. Was so the thin. script was appalling. Ugh. No spin-off, thank you. Yeah. But the characters who really feel like this is somebody... And I, the whole is she Bond's equal? It doesn't matter. That's not a, an ambition that women should be aiming for. Frankly, it would reduce them to mm. try and be Bond's equal. Atomic Blonde was Bond's equal, and she was miserable. But the, the characters who are intelligent and have their own plans and ideas and relationships that go way beyond whatever Bond gets involved with. Tracy. They have lives before he turns up. Paris Carver. If he leaves them alive, not Paris Carver, then they have <laughs> lives after that. Uh, Waylon. Yeah, 
Exactly. So those are the ones that actually make me go, ah, yes, more of those, please. And Craig's series, Daniel Craig's series of Bond films, has had more of these women mm. than the rest of the Bond franchise combined put together. Oh yeah, oh yeah. And several of them are in No Time to Die. Camille. Yeah, absolutely. But Madeline in Life before, life afterwards exactly. didn't shag him. Exactly. But specifically looking at Madeline in this case, she has not only a life before him that we only know because it's talked about, we see the evidence of it. We get flashbacks to it, which mm. very few of the other female characters have ever had. This film is about her the way that Skyfall is about M. So, also tying it back to Vesper, do you remember that there was a dropped plot thread for the potential sequel to Casino Royale? Vesper had a child, then Bond has to look after the kid, and then either we've got to kill a child, or Bond has to foist them off to an orphanage or something like that. But either way, I, th I feel like they'd have ended up with... Um Julia from the Mission Impossible series that way, mm, whereas like yeah. we get recurring, like we get to see this Remember, kid. Remember, she's still about. We get to see this kid in a crowd, but Bond will not interact with them yeah. because otherwise it would endanger them. For the record, by the way, that would have been completely inconsistent with both his character and Vespers. They're both orphans. They would not abandon another child. They actually said that. They said that Bond would not abandon a kid, and that like they realized they had a strong enough character that. They, that they that would leave them with a very difficult situation. So yeah. they held that plot thread They'd be back. trying to square a circle that wouldn't be squared. Yeah. What did you think of the theme song by Billie Eilish? I really liked it. Although it did occur to me that uh, there's been a pattern with Craig's Bond themes where they pick an artist who's big with the kids around about the time that they're writing the script. And by two years later, it's like... Yeah, okay, they're, they're still current, but mm. they're not the height of popularity that they were a couple of years ago. Yeah, I got you. But I did really like the song. Yeah. Um, I, to me, it feels like... Uh, I, I know a lot of people hate The Writings on the Wall by um, Sam Smith and Mark Ronson. I really like it. I love that one. Uh, but I feel like this one could at least... Like, people could warm to it a bit more as a similar-sounding song. Also, if You Know My Name is actually from M's point of view, mm. and um, another way to... I don't even, don't even talk about <laughs> another way to die. Another way to die is throw this in quick. We didn't like the Shirley Bassey song. Um, but the Shirley Bassey song is from Bond's point of view. Yes. Uh, Skyfall is from M's point of view, yes. again. Writings on the Wall is from Bond's point of view. This... While the writings on the wall is precipitous of heartbreak, frightened of moving forwards with this feeling that cannot be trusted, this song is a resignation of, well, I tried, and now I'm suffering hard. And I do love the way they evoke the image of Britannia from the intro to On Her Majesty's Secret Service, only rather than it being just a striking silhouette, her trident seems incredibly threatening and casts a very dangerous shadow. I should have known I'd leave alone just goes to show that the blood you bleed is just the blood you own we were a 
Sung from a feminine voice. Fool Me Once was Vesper, Fool Me Twice was Madeline. All of these songs have been very emotionally charged, except Another Way to Die, uh, which is why it stands out as like, you know, th- th- this song really doesn't even fit. So as, as much as you might hate the writings on the wall, it at least fits with mm. Spectre, and it's reprised in the, uh, the themes of Spectre, whereas... Um, another way to die in no way turns it's, up in Quantum of Solace. It's a on extra and yeah. it feels like it. After this uh, opening sequence where there's been a five-year ellipses, uh, Craig puts Madeline on a train and goes off to live his own life. And we start back in with uh, Voldo Obrashev, uh, the guy who looks a bit like Tobias Funke. I'm going to call him Dr. Doak. For like every time we ref- reference him again, okay. that's a character out of the, a flat-faced character out of GoldenEye '64. Which is funny. You should reference GoldenEye because I couldn't stop thinking of Computer Geek. Oh, Boris Grishenko. Yes. For me, he was a bum note. They 
started out... I was about to say he was like the one bomb note for me. He, he started out like sort of um, like various gags being around him and like they just kept coming. Mm. He just kept saying things that were kind of awkward and funny and it's like, people... This isn't one of your games, Boris. Real people will die. Yeah, there's none of that. You don't have somebody to do that for him. And it's for me, it wasn't so much the gags, although the gags were like, ugh, you're not doing that in this one stop it Mm. but for me it was the fact that one thing they did so well in this and from the sounds of things there were more examples of this than I could think of because you picked up the one where she holds her stomach on the train Mm -hmm. but they did very much the visual setup payoff yeah the here's the thing and it's done in a way that again it's subtle but it stays in your mind and it's there when they need to pick it back up again for later. It's a crucial element of, of mm. what's going to happen further down the line. And there were maybe two, maybe three occasions where they'd done that and I was thinking, oh, they've done that really well. And it doesn't seem to, they don't seem to feel the need to flag it. Yeah. And then Boris pops up from the side Dr. and goes, Doug. hey, it's da 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 da. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, we didn't need that. Dr. Doak has designed a smart uh, bacterium which um, attacks individuals that it can be programmed to go for with uh, via DNA. It's nanobots. Nanotechnology, yeah. This is fox dye. Do you know what fox dye is? Okay, she's shaking, she's nodding, which is great podcasting. I, I, I can't tell you exactly what it is, but I know it's from Metal Gear Solid. Metal Gear Solid. Uh, Snake himself is infected with nanobots without him knowing. Um, they're like, I'm just going to inject you with this, this, and this, uh, Snake, to keep you warm. And what it basically is... For the love is, of God, do not let your employers inject you with anything without telling you what it is. It's an assassin uh, a virus, effectively, that means that whenever he meets anyone from Unit Foxhound, they die suddenly, not immediately as soon as he meets them, but just after prolonged exposure to him. And usually they monologue and eulogize themselves. Mm. And there's this one character you meet early on um, uh, who's played, who is in fact Decoy Octopus in disguise, who dies suddenly. And you're like, why the fuck did this guy die? And then you find out later, oh, that was Decoy Octopus from Foxhound. Oh my God, I've got Fox die in me, which basically like Snake's been sent in to kill people, which means when they finally do the Metal Gear Solid movie, if they do the attack on Shadow Moses Island, they've done that in this. It's been done. But it took a long time to get round to this plot in in, uh, um, Bond even though it's technically kind of already there in On Her Majesty's Secret Service. Blofeld's plan in that film is to kill crops, entire strains of of grains and seeds, uh, by sending out um, women who've been to this clinic to get their allergies dealt with, um, infected with this new strain that basically will kill corn and wheat. And I put this as number one scariest, most frightening of all Bond villain plans, mainly because you wipe out major food sources that kills all the herbivores who needed that stuff to eat. It will fuck up and then kills the carnivores. See Interstellar for an example of how that plays. And specifically, you can't control it. He's doing this for money and a pardon for all his past crimes which is such bullshit the implication seems to be and this is often the case for Bond style villains because it's done in other films that are kind of aping Bond as well they have no intention of actually using whatever it is that they've got they just hold the world ransom for one million dollars which frankly 
says to me, why the fuck did you invest so much mm. money in actually developing the thing in the first place? Just tell everybody you've done it. They yeah. can't take the chance and not believe you. Whereas this is um, uh, one of the lines that uh, M says, he isn't even a true believer, referring to, I think, um, the guy that, uh, Sebastian Foucault, that uh, Bond shot at the embassy mm. in, the, in the first Casino Royale. Yeah. The villain in this is a true believer. Mm. He is doing this terrible, terrible thing because he wants to do it and believes he is actually doing the right thing. However, which makes it scary. He is completely unreflective of his own motives, and yeah. he 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 believes he's doing the right thing, but he doesn't even really know why. Also, we meet him way too late in the game Agreed. for him to really be this abiding presence throughout the film. Where like most of the film, film at least for Act Two, which is a big act, mm. we're like. Hang on, what's going on here? Yeah. Uh, like Bond. We are with Bond not quite knowing what's going on. Absolutely. And he is in and out sporadically enough that his his plot mm. is not the point. Yeah. And that's fine. That's fine. I'm yeah, fine. I agree, actually. I'm not like, oh, they sacrificed the villain. We've had a bajillion Bond villains. They're all mostly the same. Yeah. Ultimately, that his ideas are not necessarily doomed, but there are huge holes in them. Yeah. And my guess is that if he ever actually got to the point where he was doing the thing he intended mm. to do, he would realise 48 hours after he'd started it, what the what fuck have, have I, I done? done? And thrown himself off a cliff. Yeah. Um, but Dr. Doak is an extension of this plan and he's an annoying tit the whole way yes. through yes, and I, I thought as I, as you were talking about it I was like right so it's not just me David Dasmalkian he was uh, the one from uh, Ant-Man the, the Baba Yaga that guy who oh, played okay. Polka Dot Man recently in the Suicide Squad I didn't have anything in particular against the actor it was just oh. the things they were asking him to do but I was just thinking him playing a haunted version of that same mm. character like the things I have I've made seen. and I have seen this yeah. is not things you joke That's about what, yeah that's totally like you what get you that need guy from that, from yeah. that character. Absolutely. Like making him a, a, a making him comic is like okay. So when I do the edit of this, he's gone from most of these scenes. Such a twit. key element of the plot, as in the villain plot, not the plot of the film, but the key element of the plan is how it relates to Mallory yeah. and the fact that he has sponsored, requested, supported, encouraged the development of this weapon with the intention that it will make something which can be very specific. Yeah completely ignorant of the fact that it can very, very easily be made into something which is the complete opposite of that. I really feel like Money Penny should have chewed him out. Yeah! Like, there should have been a scene, like, he, Bond chews him out and he goes, get the fuck out of my office! And it's like, well, you know, they've always clashed. But, like, Money Penny has never really given Emma a piece of her mind. Somebody, somebody needed to say to him... Dude, do you have any concept of how DNA mm. works? And Q should have been in the room, and then uh, M should have like shouted at Money Penny to leave, and then Q should have said something quiet and cutting that left Mallory like, oh, 
You know, like, because he knows he's in the wrong. Yeah. Just, frankly, it didn't even need to be quiet and cutting. Just, you know she's right. I know, but Ben Wishaw is quiet and yes, cutting. Yes, he is. That's very true. <laughs> and unlike Dr. Doak, he's very good at doing that. Yeah. <laughs> By the way, I, I don't, he never said it, but uh, Bond was like, like, he has a sphinx cat, and Bond was like, oh my God, it's Mr. Bigglesworth. <laughs> <laughs> Bond was like, you know, they make those with fur. He never says, I'm allergic to fur, but it's like a nice little detail of Q's house. Yeah. Just the thing about it would appear that Q's gay. Oh, why? Okay, well, I didn't He's catch that. He's setting out dinner that's obviously for a date. Mm-hmm. And at one point he goes, look, he'll be here in 20 minutes. Oh, never mind. <sighs> that's the most you're going to get. I know. <sighs> I suppose it's a step forward from Mr. Winter, Mr. Kid. Yes, indeed. That was from back in uh, Diet. That, this, like, after On Her Majesty's Secret Service, this wonderful mix of really silly, stupid, like he's dressed like Austin Powers in a kilt, and actually that bit was really good. And um, like, like the fight scenes, they're kind of like William Shatner fight scenes, but it's edited fast, so it seems like it's actually a bit more punchy. Mm. And there's some really good spy stuff, and Diana Rigg is a treasure in that film. She really just never gives him an inch. I love her in that. She's so good. But after that, you get Diamonds Are Forever, which is shit. It's a shit Bond film. It was a dismal last Bond film for Connery to do, Mm -hmm. as was Never Say Never Again, which is just a retread of Thunderball that he'd already done. Like, uh, frankly, Connery should have left on You Only Live Twice, uh, you know, just bowed out on that one. They go straight to uh, live and let die. There's not a. Si- I, I will be honest with this. There is not a single Connery that gets into my top Bond films. Yeah. Okay. Also, we hear movies pointed out this as well. A lot of adults, sort of in their like thirties and forties now, are like, you know, I've seen Bond films, and, they, and then they think about it and go the. Brosnan ones. I'm sure I've seen a Connery one. Like I saw a bit of Goldfinger, and the big gap is Roger Moore. They don't. They haven't seen the Roger Moore era. Live and Let Die yeah. was constantly on the TV at Christmas. That was my, that was Bond for me. Was Live and Let Die until I saw License to Kill, and then I was like, Oh, he came here to play. Mm. By the way, License to Kill. Fuck me. What a scary, bloody, really grown uppy, horrible, but at the same time compelling Bond. Yeah. Film? There's bits. We watched of it. that last night. We did, and I'm very glad you showed me that one again You're as well. Welcome. But there are bits of it that are corny and shit, but for the most part, that is a good Bond film. Yeah. Sanchez is also like that real life piece of shit, Robert Darby. Uh, he's this psychopathic drug dealer who just like, brrr, just like kills people left, right, and center. No problem at all. But yeah, License to Kill is worth seeing now, especially in HD. Yeah, and especially in light of. No Time to Die. Yeah. Because although it doesn't emphasise his relationship with Tracy much, it hints at it and it does um, strengthen his uh, ongoing relationship with Felix. Yeah, because uh, Felix's wife uh, throws him the garter in a kind of next person to get married. And he's like, "Mm, no, cheers. Mm. But also he was their best man, which means he's Felix's best friend. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a nice way of filling in a lot of blanks in the Felix yeah. side of things. Although, uh, d- just the way they played out Felix's character, it's it's so unfair. He gets a 45-second, exactly the same thing has happened to Bond, and then he's laughing and joking by the end of the movie. I don't think he'd recover from it that fast. His wife gets killed. Yeah. They've just got married. They're on their honeymoon. Yeah, and he's like, let's go fishing later. And Felix is like, yeah, old buddy. 
I thought you were talking about the new. No, oh, Sorry. no, no, no. Yeah. In, in license. Got my Felixes mixed up. <laughs> May I please talk about Paloma? Yes, you may talk about Paloma. <laughs> Anna de Armes. Oh, she's wonderful. Of uh, Knives Out and uh, Blade Runner 2049. I was confused by her because I was like, where? What's real about her? Because like she's like sitting there chugging back martinis and thinking, I don't really. This is my. It's my first day about it. And then when she actually gets down to the action, she's like pew 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 pew, like 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 fucking John Wick. Mm-hmm. Yep. So um, it was a weird combination of is she telling him she's less experienced than she is. Is she going to shoot him in the back? Oh, no, she's not actually going to betray him at all. That's welcome, which means that like she could probably come back at some point in some capacity. I don't know. Like The, the way they open things up with 007 in this, it felt like they definitely wanted to put a back door for can we continue this universe. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that the crowning glory was like she took him, takes him down to the wine cellar after he meets her, and she's looking fucking fabulous in this cocktail dress and she starts to take off his shirt and he's like oh okay well, I didn't realise we were getting to that and then she's like oh no uh, yeah no no thanks cheers bye in a, in a, in a kind of oh no no, no. Like, but she, the way she does it is a, is a kind of that hadn't even vaguely occurred to me which is really neat for a Bond film absolutely right okay so what struck me about Paloma was how the, there are like half a dozen things that she does in this that are completely contradictory and yet she came across as totally authentic. Okay, I so I wasn't confused for a... Not at all. I completely believe mm. that a woman who has had tr- enough training in firearms and fighting mm. to be superb on that front could also be socially inept enough to need to drink her way through her first major field exercise. Hmm. I believe three weeks training. I think three weeks out in the field training. Right. I think she's probably uh, either she's been an agent runner or she's she's done something in a different department Maybe she previously. did a strawberry fields job. Possibly, although honestly she seems like the other end of the strawberry field scale. Like maybe she's a firearms trainer. Maybe mm. this is just the first time she's gone front of house. That's a fine point actually. If she's a firearms trainer, the... <sighs> I don't want to be like, show us her training, but like... Good Lord, no. It's obvious that she's had training from the mm. way she's behaving. Yeah. You know, this this is the stuff that she's competent at. But again, this is what I... One of the things I really liked about this is you have different women in this who are good at different things and shit at different things. Mm. None of them are that super competent, sour-faced, but I'm good at everything, stereotypical woman, if you're allowed to have one. And yet, none of them are this disposable well she's here to I'm not even going to say it but we didn't really need her in the first place because this is a man's movie for men's things they don't have any of that and I really appreciate it also they aren't kidnapped gaslit and abused which is absolutely quite refreshing and while yes alright Paloma is not on screen long enough for us really to get to see much of her history 
Again, we get the impression that she had her before, and we see the evidence of that through the way that she's behaving here, and she will have an after because of that bit where she's saying to Bond, I'll see you next time and I hope you can stay longer next time. Mm. And the also the fact that when they go into the party... I can't remember exactly who it is. I, don't, I think it's probably Bond. Refers to it as a, a bunga bunga party. That is a direct reference... No, to Berlusconi? Is, yeah, a direct reference to Berlusconi. There are a lot of things said in this that make it very clear that this is set in the political world of the last 10 years or so. Mm-hmm. And But the fact that the he makes reference to that and he says, have you ever been to one of these parties? And she said, how do you think I got this job? So clearly at some point she's been one of those socialites scooped up and brought into this environment mm. to flirt with the politicians and make them feel like big sexy men. Uh. And she's gone... Do you know, I really don't want to do this anymore. Someone's offered her a chance to come and work for, I'm assuming it's the CIA, mm-hmm. and she's jumped at it. And mm-hmm. I thought that was fantastic. That was a really nice little working in of a history without having to say too much about it. It also goes double to explain why she would feel uncomfortable in that social environment, because if that is the kind of place that she used to hang out before she got this job, then there would have been some leftover, if not, what if somebody who knows me sees me, then at least this kind of environment was where I was not feeling very happy. Let's talk about Cuba in what appears to be the kind of place that Ian Fleming would have written the Bond novels. Bond, the life that Bond has carved out for himself is actually not a million miles off of what, what he retreats to in Skyfall. Mm-hmm. You know, the whole, like, I drink beer with a scorpion on my hand. Uh, it seems less self-destructive like he's you know showering he's living alone he's still he's very paranoid he's cleaning his teeth that's a good sign he's 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 paranoid though like he's he's got an eye out for for anything he's fishing he's but it's empty and they're going out of their way to say this is the guy that we've all wanted to be at some point in our lives until we've really examined what does that actually entail. Mm-hmm. And when he's not doing the James Bond thing, this is his lifestyle. It's rich, as in, like, he's got access to luxuries, but it's so fucking emotionally empty. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And honestly, I feel like Craig does his best acting in this Fifth film. And it does build on what was always the appeal for the Bond series as a whole, which is that that boomer masculinity. You work at your job really, really hard. People criticise you because you do things in a slightly outmoded way. But ultimately, you're the one who gets the job done. And when it's all finished, Mm. you're going to get to retire to a hut in the Bahamas and fish. And won't that be wonderful? In the first film, he's very smooth. He's very kind of, you know, it's tailored. And like, there's a a variety in Casino Royale, but he kind of defaults to a smooth version of of James Bond. Like, he's slick and prowling. Mm. In the second, he's angry and closed off and cold in the third he's bitter in because he's been betrayed and left and shot and uh, and like being brought back and then told he can't do his his thing anymore and um in the fourth he's smug which is the which is why that film fucking sucks mm. and in this one he's very human like his voice is raised up several octaves Absolutely. like he exclaims things really loudly in a kind of i can't fucking believe this yeah. way there are multiple occasions when he employs psychological insight in terms of how to interact with somebody like he'll set up a ruse but he'll he'll do it in a way that makes me think 
I've not seen Bond do this before. Yeah. And there's that, that neat little game that he plays with uh, Felix in the bar where they're guessing how many coins are in each other's hands. And I was reminded of the liar's dice game in... Uh, uh, the second Pirates of the Caribbean movie where it's like, no one could possibly know the rules of this fucking thing. But you kind of work it out. It's go, Johnny, go, go. I was just about to say, what know you of eight men down? But that scene does show Bond is actually kind of fun to hang around. They're like Daniel Craig's Bond in particular has seemed a little bit too like serious mm. uh, up until now yeah. like you know you, if he if he hung around at a barbecue he'd just be glaring at the meat exactly but it's the isolationist element of him it's the fact that he has this kind of cloud of hurt around him that he won't let anybody else through and ultimately you can't keep doing that over and over again because it's boring mm. and it doesn't go anywhere and it doesn't mean anything. The whole point of having that shell in somebody's character is that one hopes you're going to show us how it gets broken through, either from the inside or from the outside. But the again, the emphasis in this on the the building of relationships and while, all right, let's cast out previous bonds and the, the versions of Felix that they've interacted with, this Felix, Jeffrey Wright's Felix, and he's great, I love him, it has been around since Casino Royale mm. and, and it impressed me that he refers to him as his brother and the first thing Felix introduces himself as is a brother from Langley. A brother from Langley. I was thinking he's been here since Casino Royale he was. He's there for that short week or so of Bond's life, that mm. couple of weeks, because Quantum also takes place in that time. He's not in Skyfall. He's not in Spectre. I know, I know. This is one of those goodbye Felix Leiter, we hardly knew ye moments. Yeah. Like, oh my God, we really didn't get to take this character for a ride. Like we've, uh, over the past couple of weeks, we haven't talked about Felix Leiter all that much. He's just kind of there. Yeah. We've had to have sort of add him as an afterthought, which is how it's kind of felt in both those movies. Mm. And that doesn't get wholly usurped in this. He's more... They fridge Felix, basically. They do. To, yeah. to upset Bond yeah. and to send him and on a path. And it's the, the, also the way that he dies is very specifically visually evoking Vesper's death. Yeah, yeah. In water. Um, specifically drifting away from him. Although, notably, no dead Bond girls in this. And remember what we said, like, just lay off that for one movie or mm. two. Like, can we just get by without them being punished? And I think we managed to get through Spectre with, with that as well. So the last Bond girl to be just <laughs> such a waste of good scotch was... Um, Severine. Severine in Skyfall. And that was a long time ago. Mm. So that illustrates that I'm, I'm sure it won't be the like that we're going to see another Bond girl get killed. But they've addressed the fact that Daniel Craig's Bond touches the lives of these women and then they're destroyed. And he's become cautious since Severine, even though he's never thought of or talked about her ever again. Mm. It's Vesper that's really dwelled with him. And then Strawberry, obviously, again, never mentioned again, but there's that there. There's mm. that sense of what he touches dies. Which plays thematically into the end.
speaking of which, while they're at the party, Fox Die goes into overdrive. The bit where, like, they scatter droplets of this smart nanobot virus all over the party goers. Bond just sort of like is standing on an octopus in a spotlight, oh. looking up and going, what? That shot, tell me you were not thinking of Miss Piggy coming up out of her Busby Berkeley number. Miss Piggy. Okay. It, the reason that he doesn't go fuck and run at that point is because the film knows he's not going to die. Mm. And everyone else around him goes, ha ha ha, you stupid twat bond, you fell right into our spectre trap. It's a bunga bunga spectre party. And then they all start dying while he looks around and goes, I have no idea what's going on here. (laughs) And again, it's like all that training, all that ability to sort of self-preserve, and you're just going to stand there while while you appear to be scattered with nerve gas. But like he's looking around and going... The main characters in this film are not affected by this. Interesting. Mm. As opposed to, I gotta get the fuck out of here! Nerve gas! Or something. Like, he doesn't know how it works at this point. Yes. It's a kind of weakness of that scene. Like, it's one of those sort of like, the, the, the character acts like this because the movie knows something that the character doesn't. But the character should suspect things that the movie... Like, yeah. Again, the way they played it with Madeline, we don't know, neither does he. He becomes ridiculously paranoid. That makes sense. Yeah. When he gets scattered with nerve gas, he's like, well, this is most irregular. <laughs> Haven't you been in death traps before, James Bond? You're James Bond! Begin the unnecessarily slow dipping mechanism. <laughs> Find some water or vinegar or something and douse yourself with it because you don't know what that was. But here's the thing. They kill all of Spectre in this one room, in this one go. And then he goes to see Blofeld. And then Blofeld's like, ah, my brother. Mm, I am the architect of your pain. And then Bond's like, fucking die. And then he goes, okay. And dies. They just got Spectre back. They just got that license back from McClory. Yeah, and they went, and we they don't went, we don't need it. it. Chuck it in the bin and they just kill all of Spectre and Blofeld. Blofeld doesn't even die in a satisfying way. He just dies off camera and you're like, is he really dead? Oh yeah, I guess he must be. Yeah. But, but again, you're Bond and you're like, you're like, Bond should be, no, no, no. I need to see the body. I need to know this fucker's actually dead. You should be with Bond in a feeling like there's no way Blofeld's actually dead. Mm. Like, this is a way of springing him from prison. Yeah. And also because he's been beha- in the conversation with Blofeld, he is behaving in a way that's a little bit, is that him? Is this really him? Is he putting this on? Is it Grindelwald's double? Yeah. It's, it did feel a bit sort of something weird is happening here that we aren't, we aren't going to get to mm. see all of it play out. But this was this was uh, one of the examples of what I meant about the setup and the payoff, because you've had the setup where Madeline's been given this atomizer by Lucifer. Lu- it's uh, his name is. Yeah, I know it's meant to evoke Lucifer, but it isn't actually. 
Lietzifer Safin. Lietzifer Safin. Okay, so Safin. So he's given her this atomizer by posing as a, a new patient, a new client. Mm. And Rami Malek is a frightening, frightening man. He did do very well in terms of the being overall creepy. And yeah. uh, I loved the fact that her... Uh, receptionist walked past her on the stairs as she's coming in. Goes, she goes, you got a new patient. He's weird. <laughs> and Madeline's like, you're not allowed to say that. You call your patients wackos. <laughs> he is weird. <laughs> Let's be fair. But um, but yeah. So that you have this from the moment you see that you kind of guess that Blofeld is the one that she's supposed to be. Assassinating. assassinating yeah um, which but, she eventually goes no fuck it I'm not gonna but because Bond's grabbed her wrist exactly he then touches her, Blofeld by the neck and kills him you see her spray the atomizer on her wrist as she leaves the room before Blofeld arrives you see James grab her hand mm. it's not entirely clear whether she knows that that is enough to then carry out what is supposed oh no to yeah happen. she knows she's like get you know you don't know what you're doing like but she can't then say, don't touch him, whatever yeah, you do. absolutely. But for the rest of that scene, I'm staring at Bond's right hand because I'm like, where's that hand going to go? Is he going to touch Blofeld directly? And the, he comes over and leans on the cage and I'm like, would that be enough? Did it have to not be skin to skin? Can you leave it on a surface? Is it like COVID? How long does it survive? It is strange because basically at this stage, Bond is aware of the nanobot, nanobot technology and he doesn't twig. Like, there's, there's various bits in the film where I'm like, you must know. He'd what? have no reason at this point to think that Madeline had had any contact with the people who right. were planting them. Okay, okay, fair enough. But at, at this stage, you're like, it's Blofeld behind all of this. I kind of love the fact that they kill Blofeld while he's ranting about them being brothers. It's almost like they're going, yeah, that was a shit idea. Mm, Let's just bit, kill him. Yeah. Let's just fucking throw all of that in the trash. And also, again, this is the whole setup and payoff. It's it, a Bond fire sale. Everything, everything must, go. must go. For the rest of the movie, I'm thinking, everybody that he comes across who doesn't immediately die horribly, I'm thinking, okay, well, we know they weren't related to Blofeld. Okay. <laughs> He's not related to Blofeld. Exactly, but that's my point. He's his brother's, sister's, cousin's, best friend's former roommate. Yes. Making them nothing at all. Absolutely. Okay, uh, then there's the license to kill element of it, where, like we said, uh, Felix dies uh, as a result of... Uh, it's... It's that whole the CIA and uh, the uh, uh, MI6 are not talking to each other. Mm -hmm. And there is that they're both at odds with each other in License to Kill and Felix is kind of in the middle and then he ends up be, like, having his entire life ruined in that film. Mm -hmm. And in this, ended. Yeah. Just purely as a result of him doing his job. Like I said, it just it's it's clearing away all everything that's to do with Bond. When, when he says later on there's no one left that can hurt her, I think it's... Um, Madeline says there's no one left that can, can hurt us. It's like you've just dispatched everyone in the Bond universe who isn't an ally of, uh, of MI6 and M and Mallory. Mm. Yeah, Cutting off the, um, what's the word, tying off the loose ends. Yeah, but there's this, a lot of tying off of loose ends. Again, like I said about the whole, the, the things that are said that make it feel like this is set in the political world of now, like within the last 10 years or so, mm. uh, Felix's remark about our, our governments, our intelligence departments are not talking to each other. That is not a good thing. Yeah. And the fact that Logan Ash, who turns out to be the, the uh, ostensibly the CIA mole. mole, who in actual fact is trying to undermine the whole thing, mm. they 
specifically say he's a political appointment, he actually works for the State Department. It's not said outright, but that felt like a hint of this is a mate of a mate of Trump's and he's been put here to do something to do with that sort of inner circle mm. rather than anything to do with actual intelligence. Because when this was made, Trump was president? Yeah. Fuck. I mean, I, that could be me going way too deep on it, but that, that's the kind of feeling that the people who are uh, the elected officials, as Felix puts it, are actually not too crash hot at their jobs right now. If the CIA aren't able to depose an existing very corrupt president, then Americans, America's intelligence agencies are very much called into question in the real world. Mm. Uh, I would argue that if the CIA was capable of doing that, they'd have done it. They did it back in the 60s. Which suggests that if they could do it back then, for whatever reason, they can't do it now. Yeah. Because what better reason do you need? Oh, he died of a heart attack. He well, all those Big Macs every had day. COVID. The window was right there. <laughs> Instead, they were like, oh shit, we got Ruth Bader Ginsburg by accident. <laughs> what? Did you did you put the drop in that drink? Yes, but Trump only drinks Mountain Dew. Huh. <sighs> like, he's he's got this pandemic virus that's going around killing nearly everybody, but he looks like th this is like pillow over the face. Don't ask questions. Speaking of pandemic, the whole, like, uh, the plot being... The, there's going to be these killer robot virus. This killer robot virus will be out there and we'll be afraid of each other. Each person will be a node in this war. I was like, ooh, yeah, that's a pre-COVID plot line. And they didn't, they weren't able to trim it back enough. And I think they just left it in in a kind of, isn't this relevant I kind of way. I think ultimately it, it it serves to underpin the part of the story that says, Mallory, you utter dick. What made you think they weren't going to do something yeah. that you never thought of with this? Um, uh, yeah. Though it also gives credence to the crazed conspiracy theories of COVID was made in a lab by the Secret Services. I'm not taking their Kool-Aid. Cheers for that. I'm sure we've done this before, but it's important to highlight the differences in writing teams across the five Craig movies. All five were headed up by Neil Purvis and Robert Wade. They've been present since 2006. Paul Haggis of Crash accompanied them on Casino Royale and Quantum of Solace. John Logan accompanied them for Skyfall and Spectre. One man accompanied them just for Spectre and his name was Jez Butterworth. So let's blame everything that went wrong in Spectre on Jez, shall we? And for this one, the director, Carrie Fukunuga, director of the really excellent Jane Eyre adaptation, starring Mia Wasikowski and Michael Fassbender, also Beasts of No Nation. Also, he wrote or adapted It, along with Chase Palmer and Gary Dauberman. Notably, only Gary Dauberman was there for It Chapter 2, which may have been why it suffered. But Carrie Joji Fukunuga, who directed this impeccably, also did a pass on the script. And they also brought in Phoebe Waller-Bridge, Fleabag. 
it's very possible she prevented there being gags in this that just weren't funny. It's very possible that she made sure there was dialogue in this that was funny. It's very likely she was brought in so that they could make sure the women had a voice that felt authentic. Though I'm sure she did much more than that. She is an amazingly talented lady. Way more than Jez Butterworth, anyway. We meet, while Bond is on his island, prior to getting back into the fray, after five years of retirement, Lashana Lynch as Nomi, a new double O agent sent to... To get him on side with the MI6. It's explicitly to tell him not to do what the CIA have just asked him to do right, and to yeah. stay out of it. So the CIA contact Bond first, that's Felix, and then she turns up and goes, yeah, no, don't. Yeah. Stay out of our way. Absolutely. And She's on the job to find yeah. the scientist who's gone missing and she doesn't want Bond messing it up and presumably Mallory has said to her, hmm. tell him to stay out of this. Now, she's, like I said, a 00 agent, has been for two years. Turns out later she's 007 and they keep saying, it's just a number, it's just a number. And Bond says it in a way that suggests he isn't actually sort of like, it's just a number. Like, he, he, he has kind of like, he's not jealous, he's not... He doesn't feel like, I want to do that he thing and no one else can do that. remarkably unfussed. It's a remnant of a life he doesn't want yeah. anymore. He is effectively uh, sort of like uh, approving of her and saying, yeah, sure, you, you, you're perfectly capable of doing what you, uh, what I used to do. And, and she is. You've broken my car. It's Commander Bond. You know that. Double O? Two years. Very young. High achiever. Oh, Jesus Christ. The world's moved on since he retired, Commander Bond. Perhaps he didn't notice. No, can't say I had. And in my humble opinion, the world doesn't change very much. You had to say that. Look, this all seems like heaven. This little bubble or whatever. Her performance I really, really liked. Um, she, she has a kind of a, a, a cold credibility about it. Mm. She's sarcastic and dry and in control kind of a female version of James Bond and it feels like you could dig below the surface and there'd be loads of extra things in there so Absolutely. potentially a, a fascinating she character. is she is quite prickly and and a little bit defensive but it feels like she's young for a double o agent mm. she's not been in the role very long she's female she's black it's highly likely she's had to fought, fight her way through a ton of crap to get to this position you can completely understand why she would be prickly and defensive it also feels like they got her snuck in under the wire during an actual james bond film so that if it, at some point in the future they do a female 007 or a black 007, people can't go, there's never been a female or black 007 before. You, you can just go, well, yes, there has. And weirdly, that kind of person is will take things very literally and go, well, I suppose, yes. And because she was played effectively kind of inoffensively, like she didn't shit all over the Bond legacy, she was kind of allowed to be there but very much a Waylin. Like I like the whole way through the movie, she was really, really competent. She she knew what she was doing, and she was his match. His you know, she was tough and, and she she was someone that he could rely on. And the film's not about her. She's just hmm. there. She but but I really yeah, I agree. I really liked the way she was played. I liked the character. I liked how different she was from him and, yeah. and how yes, the whole she's bonds match, blah de blah. But hmm. they didn't do that thing of they're going to have a direct sparring match and she's going mm. to be attracted to it. it was just like pff, no 
that wasn't even on the table. That wasn't even near the table. They could actually have played it. They could have removed the Madeleine element and basically made it about Bond in retirement. It, you know, that gets dragged back for one more gig by the new 007. And then they spend the whole film like butting heads and eventually kind of she accepts him and he accepts her and that that's a film it is a film but it would also have been an extension of what they've been blushingly trying to do every so often for years and it would have been yeah. pointless and it wouldn't have been anything new yeah um and i i liked it i particularly like the fact that she isn't just an agent who comes across him in the field and the only person she ever interacts with is him this is another thing about the the importance of this film being about the relationships it's not just james bond in the middle with all of these relationship spokes going out to these individual people who are connected to him but not connected to each other. There is a web, a network of relationships going on here between Moneypenny and Q and Mallory and the fact that 007 is is connected to them as well and she interacts with all of them. It, It felt real. It felt like a world, not a... A, a written, creative thing that cycles around this yeah. one man. It was an extension and an evolution of what they tried to do in Spectre and to a degree succeeded in, mm. which is making Bond feel more like an ongoing TV show where they flesh out the exactly. other characters. And, it, and this is what I meant about what they were blushingly groping at with Skyfall. I think this is what they tried to set up in Skyfall, but they didn't know why they were mm. setting it up. Right. I will say one thing about Lashana Lynch, and it's not her fault at all. The lighting was a problem with Lashana Lynch on screen. The cinematographer is Linus Sandgreen, who's done La La Land and First Man. Okay. Lashana Lynch disappeared into shadow repeatedly. I could often only tell she was there when she opened her mouth and I could see her teeth. And I'm going to play for you now, folks, something that I saw on Vox a while back about the development of film throughout the 20th century and how it was effectively honed to Caucasian skin. This is a Shirley card. And if you developed color film between the 1940s and the 1990s, the accuracy of the colors in your photos were pretty much based on this skin tone. Shirley was probably the name of the first person who was pictured on the cards. And Shirley became the subsequent name of all the women pictured on the card. That's Lorna Roth, a professor and researcher at Concordia University in Montreal. Usually they were white women who wore very colorful dresses. Color film works like this. There are layers of chemicals stacked on each other that are sensitive to different colors of lights. And there are a series of different types of chemical solutions that are used to develop them once exposed to that light. A combination of all of these chemicals creates a film's color balance. And for many decades, chemicals that would bring out various reddish, yellow, and brown tones were largely left out. The consumer market that was designated in the design of film chemistry was that of the lighter skinned market. So when it came to defining what an idealized international skin tone would be, it it turned out to be a lighter skin tone than a darker skin tone. If you're shooting people with lighter skins, it looks good. If you're shooting people with darker skins, it doesn't look so good. If you're shooting mixed race in the same screen, then we see the real problems. It wasn't until the 1970s where things started to change, and it came from a very unlikely source. 
companies that were advertising different kinds of wood furnitures were complaining that Kodak film did not render the difference between dark-grained wood and light-grained wood. The other companies that Kodak responded to were chocolate makers, because the film couldn't render the difference between dark chocolate and milk chocolate. As the film and television industries became more diverse, color balance issues at the professional level became even more apparent. And in the 1990s, a team of designers at Philips and Breda Holland tackled the issue head on by developing a camera system that used two different computer chips to balance lighter and darker skin tones individually. First people to buy these cameras for television, they were called the LDK series, were Oprah Winfrey and Black Entertainment Television, like people who were very aware of these issues. It was around this time that the white Shirley card was joined by the black Shirley card and the Latino Shirley card and the multiracial Shirley card. And Kodak's Gold Max marketing campaign emphasized their film's improved dynamic range. One of the things that they said about Gold Max is that Gold Max is a fine film that can photograph a dark horse in low light. If you were his parents, would you trust this moment to anything other than Kodak Gold film? No other film in the world gives you truer color than Kodak Gold. Today, color film and digital camera sensors have a much broader dynamic range, but the default towards lighter skin and technology still lingers. One of the big mistakes emerged in 2009. I'm sure you heard about it. My coworker Wanda and I are sitting in front of an HP MediaSmart computer. It's supposed to follow me as I move. I'm black. I think my blackness is interfering with the computer's ability to, to follow me. So she moved this way and the camera followed her. And then he'd get into the screen and it would be completely stable. No face recognition anymore, buddy. My two separate but equal light meters allow me to capture the pastiest whites and the darkiest darks. You deserve to have those memories captured by a true professional. Not ruined by some hack who can't accommodate different skin tones. The fact is there is still a cultural bias towards lighter skin, certainly in how we use technology and sometimes within the technology itself. Technology should be the ultimate equalizer. It should serve everyone's needs without an inherent bias. If a child is born into a society where all of the range of skin tones is the obvious norm, then they can no longer assume that whiteness is default. And unfortunately, even though this is shot on digital, the way it's graded and the way it's lit, she disappears quite often. Okay. So if they're going to bring her back, I hope they change the lighting scheme so that you can see her better. It's not like Black Panther, where it was very much framed around a black cast so that it made the absolute most of their skin tones and, and lit them in a way that allowed them to feel centralized, to feel spotlit. But also to feel a togetherness and a commonality, not standing out from the crowd. It's an inadvertent side effect of the lighting scheme that she disappears. Mm. And it's unfortunate, and I'm sure it wasn't intentional. Yeah. We need to see various bits of actors so that they can be a screen presence. Mm -hmm. That's fair. That's fair. I, I, I may have, I don't know, they might have had a slightly different light balance on the projector at the, the screen I saw, because I, I don't recall it being that much of an issue. But uh, yeah, I totally get that. Hmm. 
But I'm very, very sensitive to extremes of contrast anyway. Like you'll see, you'll mm. see me ranting about Disney movies and the yeah. grading in, in those particular live action remakes where it's like, yeah, I think I saw something. It was kind of shuffling over in the darkness over there. Maybe I'm just losing my sight. But yeah, like I said, her performance was fantastic and they definitely felt like we can move forwards with this character. Mm, absolutely. I've been predicting since John Wick came out that that would be the thing that influenced the next Bond film because um, cultural touchstone for action scenes in the early 2000s and then suddenly everything was like, not so much all kung fu, but there was a lot more dynamism in the fight scenes, specifically surrounding white people. Mm -hmm. Then when the Bourne trilogy came out, suddenly Bond went from not really getting into punch-ups all that often, although actually like Pierce Brosnan was pretty like physical, like he could really throw you about the place, and that fight he had with Trevelyan at the end of GoldenEye is fantastic. He but, was, but yeah. he looked like a man in a suit who was trying to stop you getting blood on his suit. Okay. Like, get off me, you <laughs> bastard. Yeah. He does this... Like, get off, get off, off, away with you, be off. But the Bourne trilogy obviously very much influenced Daniel Craig's dynamic Bond, who's been less and less able to really just take guys down as he got older, which I feel actually works. It totally works with the character. I'll put a bullet in your knee, the one that works. The one that works. Um, and, and yeah, he has trouble with younger men now. Um, and that's good. I like that. That's a good thing. But I knew because of the growing ubiquity of everyone's doing John Wick now. We watched um, uh, Nobody the other day. We watched Guns Akimbo the other day. Atomic Blonde. A bit of it. We couldn't stand Guns Akimbo. Extraction, The Suicide Squad, and you can expect it in the next Batman. They're all doing it. They're all doing John Wick. And I was actually surprised that they relegated it to just one scene where uh, Craig was sort of going through. It was all one take, and he's just sort of like, you know, taking guys out and then just sort of using the gun with a lot of versatility and dynamism. And it was like, okay, so yeah, this will probably turn up in whatever the new Bond is, unless um, co conflict and... Uh, combat has moved on to something else to be the thing that everyone does uh, between now and then. It could be a while. I'm not sure whether this point in the movie was really the point to have that, because that fighting is, oh, that's cool, and this part of the movie that that actually got to is not, oh, that's cool. But it was a nice misdirect and mislead. I, by the third act... I did not know what was going to happen, mm. but lots of characters were in play that we cared about. He goes back to Madeline after they meet, uh, uh, seemingly by chance, when he's going gone to interview Blofeld. Uh, she's his psychologist. Blofeld ends up dead. He tracks her down and finds that she's living in the house that she defended as a small child that she referred to as Hong, capital H. Yes. Where, where will I find you? Home. And she's calling him. Like, she doesn't say it, you know, beckoningly, but, like, I hoped that she was a straight shooter. There's that, that feel, like, I, I suspected, and it would be really easy to do the, turns out Vanessa was a fembot, 
with this character. I uh, predicted that would be a good way to just get rid of her and then we can move on to the next Bond girl at the end of this movie. But they really did the opposite because as it transpires, she was not working with Blofeld at the beginning. She was not trying to trap him. She was utterly heartbroken when he rejected her and thrust her out of his life. And then we meet a five-year-old child and, or four-year-old child, four and a bit. And I was like, okay, my supposition about the hand on the belly uh, was correct. Uh, And she says almost immediately after they meet this charming little French girl, He's, she's not yours. And I was like, lying, 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 always lying. Right. This, But only because yeah. I know the movie language of hand yeah. on belly. No, 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 I get that. And I, and I do, right. I, I, I can know understand why. There are gonna be there are gonna be people who watch this and go, you see, for you like all your kind, you are false. false. However. No, no, I understand completely why. Everything he touches dies. That, that wasn't it for me. Yes, you're right. There is that element to it as well. But she said, yeah, you're absolutely right. She says she's not yours. And then when he says, oh, okay, I was just thinking because she has blue eyes. Mm. She's not yours. She is very specific about that. Madeline has been claimed over and over and over throughout yeah. her life. A child of Spectre. He, he, yeah, Blofeld says she's a daughter of Spectre. Safin claims her because he says he saved her life. That means so that she belongs to him. Yeah. She would have been like the life that she had before. Um, she's she's effectively owned by her father, and this, if to me, ultimately whether Bond was Matilde's father or not, what Madeline was saying at this point was she's not yours. She's mine. Yeah. Um, I really liked. Bond's response to this. Yeah. He was like, okay, mm. like, she, she's not mine, that's fine. Yeah, she's... absolutely. He's willing to protect Matilde because she's Madeline's daughter. Yeah, and uh, then when he finds out she is his, he does. It doesn't really change. Like, I, like, you, like, he never gets resentful of her no. in a kind of, I know the truth, you kept her from me. Mm-hmm. He, like, he, know, he knows he shoved her on that train. There's never even really an argument about it. it it's, oh. they go from... It's been stated that Matilde is not his, and then Safin is referring to her as his daughter, mm. and he never contradicts that, he never challenges it. It's almost like you said, it, not that it doesn't matter, but it's it, his, his willingness to protect her is a given. Whether she is his blood or not at this point is not the point. But now he starts to, like, she is receptive to him, and we start to get a new life that Bond could re-enter and come out of this exile that he's put himself in, the best he can do for himself on his own. Uh, And by the time it got to these last action sequences, I was like, oh my God, anyone could die at this point apart from Matilda. I know Matilda's getting through this one, but mum could die or dad could die or both mum and dad could die. The the tension, and this is, I think, why it maintained that, that tension and involvement throughout the whole thing is because ultimately there are people here who could get hurt that we care Mm. about. And every other Bond movie, you're like, oh my God, is Bond going to survive this one? But this being the last Daniel Craig, I'm like, he might not. He might not. There's no <laughs> guarantees. Oh, my God. Yeah. Incidentally, by the way, were you getting very strong BB energy off Matilda? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, um, I love the way he, like, sort of made that apple uh, thing for her. And she was like, yeah, it's fine. Unfortunately, because of the age, 
she's that kind of child actress where she doesn't really know what's going on. Mm. And she's a little bit, um, I don't know. But there isn't really time for her to be Laura from Logan. Yeah. And ultimately, if she's three or four, that's fine. That's what kids are like when they're that age. Yeah. But she is symbolic of new life and new, you know, moving things forwards and, and, and something joyful and something pure and something honest. And as it turns out, all of those years that men have been coveting Bond's lifestyle and what they really, really want is to be Mr. Kiss, Kiss, Bang, Bang. What he really, really wants is the opportunity to just be a normal dude who is a dad. Mm. And to live with a partner that he loves, who loves him. He wants our life. Mm. And I was like, that's such a perfect way to close this out. Absolutely. To finish Craig's run. And then I started getting really invested. And I was like, please don't fuck this up. Yep. But what, again, they've done the, we set this thing up and it's it's almost just an aside, but you're going to remember it. And that is going to stick in your head like a, a hangnail is that... Safin in his on his first meeting with Madeline in the office takes a hair of hers that he's found and uses that to extract her DNA, which means that he can then create a vial of the nanobots mm. that will target Madeline and by extension Matilda. Yeah. Which he uses as an insurance policy. The thing that no one wants to admit is that most people want things to happen to them. We tell each other lies about the fight for free will and independence, but we don't really want that. We want to be told how to live and then die when we are not looking. People want oblivion, and a few of us are born to build it for them. So here I am, their invisible god, You know that history isn't kind to those who play God. And you don't? We both eradicate people to make the world a better place. I just want to be a little... tidier. All of the coordination of this, like, third act, it's quite complicated. There's the sort of infiltration of a poison island. It's a very Doctor No setup. There's a very, like, kind of 60s vibe about the whole thing. Mm. But it doesn't have that campness. It, it's like this very... It's frightening it is. how quiet and, and symmetrical the whole thing part is. Part of what's frightening about it is that we get to engage with it so little. They don't revel in, look at this, mm. this clinic that we've set up, this lab that we have constructed. It's just there and you have this implication of it doing these terrible things and because it builds on the fact that uh, Blofeld and Spectre used to use like traditional poison and now the nanobots are kind of the evolution mm. of that poison that's the direction that Safin has gone but because we we see him very little it's almost like he's got this weird world of something going on mm. that we only see the the edges of mm. and that makes it in a way more terrifying yeah and again Rami Malek's performance is aloof and quiet and reserved and he's uh, he's a Bond villain but he, he seems to want to really play him with some dignity kind of the way Mads Mikkelsen did yeah. like he didn't want to sneer yeah 
And when he's like, you know, you and I are both alike, he's trying to say that for himself. Mm. Usually when you and I are both quite alike, like like Christoph, like this really shows up Christoph Waltz's performance Mm. in in Spectre. It's like you were kind of being forced to do this campy, shitty, old Bond villain type thing. I feel like the Blofeld character not being filled with malice would have been more interesting. And... We didn't really get enough of Safin to to work out dimensionality to him that would maybe explain why he wants to poison the whole world. But I don't think... But see, again, we, 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 we it's not We don't need that in the sense that whatever, if yeah. you try to rationalise it too much, it falls apart like a flan in a cupboard. You, you can't... There is no... There is no explanation for wanting to cause that much death and harm mm. and pain and misery that would make sense to anybody. So let's not try and Thanos this thing. Exactly. Who he, gives he a shit what his is. justification is? Whatever happened to crazy? Exactly. But the, I mean, I will say that the what dimensionality that you get of him, it is evident that he is desperately lonely. Mm. He doesn't just do the we are alike you and I thing with Bond. He tries to connect with Madeline. Um, he's he he tries on some level to connect with Matilda, although I personally think he gave her up way too quickly. Yeah. But the... Like, let her go. Off she goes. But he doesn't seem to be the kind of person who is... Like I said, he's not so devoted to this this plan. He doesn't have a, a, a foresight of where he's going to take it after that. Mm. I think once he saw the, the results and the, the consequences of his actions, he'd have been horrified. But we will never get to that point because, like I said, he's just in this act, he's in and out, we see bits of him, and then it's over. And again, it doesn't really matter because uh, Bond would say if he had knowledge of all the previous films, there's always someone like you. Exactly. And it's always down to me to stop you, and I always get away, and I always get the girl, and then the cavalry moves in, and then I do the same thing next week. But making it this lab, making it this factory... It means that Safin is not the point. The the killing of the villain is not the point here. It's the destruction of the site because ultimately if Safin is dead and the site is left still active, somebody else will mm. move in and take over. Yeah. It's the principle of this this thing and and uh, but at the same time the greater principle at work here is that um Madeline is active and actually managed to get herself out. Mm. Um, and Matilde is active and gets herself back to her mother and, and, and father. And then Bond sends them both off with the new 007, trusting her in a kind of... A, uh, Dr. Doak gets killed. Good. Not soon enough. Um, but in a kind of a, I trust you, I've got to finish up here. And it, he really does feel at that point like, I've done this before... I should be able to get out of it. Like, he's not fatalistic at this stage. It doesn't happen until Safin slaps the vial that he uh, got the insurance policy against Bond's face and just tears that infection into him. It's the slow realisation of, I can't ever be near them again. That finishes him off like the, the, he's shot several times as well but that's not the thing that gets to bond it's the idea that what you've taken away from me here and now is everything i hoped i could change my life around to do in a positive way and what bond manages to get back for himself before the end is an assurance that that life will go on without him the 
depth of that is in part the fact that it's he can't allow this particular version of the virus off this island. At the moment, it's all contained in him. But it, it's it's like there's a there, I kind of had a moment of well, could he kind of go off and, and they'll have completely separate lives but stay in touch? But they can't because in his it head, get out as there. long as this is in the world, yeah. they're at risk. I won't allow that. And you've kind of already had this setup of, of Safin saying what mother wouldn't sacrifice herself for her child. And effectively, that's what Bond steps up to. And it's not, obviously, it's not just Matilda, it's Madeline as well. But that, that whole thing of me being around is, is not something that can happen if you're going to be safe. So it, it's not even a... It's not even something he has to think about very hard. It just is a given for him that this will happen now. And there are... You get a sequence of these moments where individual characters find out about what's going on and you see this realisation pop in for each of them. You see Madeline realise, you see Q realise. M. It, M realise, it hits everybody. And it hits them all in a slightly different way because they're all coming at it from a slightly different angle. And that reinforces this idea that this is a family. This is a network. That he's that Bond has built around him, but they forge connections between themselves now. So that network is strong enough that he can step away from it. And it will survive on its own. It's a very mature ending. Mm, extremely so. And like I said, the fact that it, it uh, followed this John Wick style sequence where at the end he kills that strange henchman with a robot eye with his tiny EMP, which doesn't short out his radio, thankfully. No, I noticed that. I was like, surely that would take out his earpiece as well? I was like, could you just like kill him in another way? Um, but he had to use the Q gadget he was given. It's the almost. One. He, most of the way through this film, he's MacGyvering shit. Yeah. This is like the one thing. Most of the way through this him. series, Q doesn't give him stuff it's always a gun on a radio mm. um but then like he kills him with a emp and then like makes a quip and i'm like yeah that's for the specter crowd and that that really had me worried that they were just gonna end on a da -da 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 -da, and then he gets away on a fucking jet ski um and that's not at all what happens the missiles rain down and he is standing on the roof waiting for them mm. talking to madeline and I said at the end of Casino Royale, maybe he'll die at the end of uh, this one. They haven't done that before. But it didn't feel like they were just doing it because they'd never done it before. They did it in a way that felt valid and justified, in a way that felt like it completed an arc on the character. Like if this was the last Bond film ever, it's an excellent last Bond film. Yeah, It's certainly an excellent last Craig Bond film. Mm. I mean, it's arguably the best because I have never been in floods of tears mm. watching any Bond film before. I was too. Yeah. <laughs> See, I would have said that, but I cried at On Her Majesty's Secret Service the other night. Yeah. <laughs> I, I cried a bit at License to Kill. And Casino Royale. Yeah, no, I've cried before, but I've never really gotten that invested. Yeah. So, you know, on a 
to a degree, emotionally speaking, it's by far the best Bond film. Structurally speaking, I think there's like there's a lot of stuff in it that it could have just it could have done without 20 minutes. Yeah, yeah. I, like I said, it did feel tense end to end, but I do think that they could, they could easily have trimmed some chunks of it. It did feel very long, and and in terms of structure and in terms of narrative and uh, character interaction, it it doesn't match Casino Royale. It comes close. Structurally, Casino Royale has a fantastic pacing. It's long, but mm. you don't feel it. Yeah. Um, it's a macrocosm of the Craig Bonds. It starts great, it finishes great, and there's, and some, there's some messy stuff in the, in the middle. middle with ups and downs. Indeed. I think uh, near the uh, end sequence, he said something like the, the missiles were on their way, and he said, oh, you know, plenty of time. And I was like, surely he should have said, I have all the time in the world at that point, in a kind of a ah moment. And then I was like, oh, shit. No, they're saving that. That's what made me hope that they were going to give this a dramatic weight. Mm. And when he eventually says it, it's not we, it's you yeah. to Madeline. I was watching nervously for the very last shots for Bond to turn up so that it could be that I want to die a hero's death and also and carry on living come back at that the, end. The, yeah. the the ultimate uh, the um, mass effect uh, renegade ending where you get to you know die a martyr smiting the reapers and have a funeral where everyone mourns you and then still be alive mm. and they didn't they had the courage of their convictions. And this one's going to be tough to top. It's going to take a while to build up. It is, uh, there's, it's not a million miles off I Am Iron Man snap. In terms of how they built the character over, in this case, more years. Yeah. Even though it's fewer films. Mm. Since 2006. I think they are going to have to take quite a bit of time to decide what they want to do next mm. because like of a hundred choices of what you do with bond after this mm. 97 of them are let's wind things backwards yeah my guess is they'll go one of two routes they'll either um one of three routes one of them choice number one Hey, here's the new Bond. It's a white British guy. We're going to bring it back to the sort of the slightly campy um, Roger Moore era. Or maybe like the Pierce Brosnan and Dalton era. Like Some of it will be serious, some of it won't be. But it's Bond, the one you know and love. Since we currently, whoever the fuck owns it at that by that point, probably Disney, will be like, we want to cater to the crowd that want the same thing over and over again. The second is, let's explore the wide world of Bond. And that's so like... They did with the Bourne legacy. The yeah. uh, Jeremy Renner uh, was it was in a Bourne film, and it's like it, it'll follow the new 007. I'm thinking and, and the 00 family. Yeah, the 00 family, and they'll try that, and and it'll be mildly successful, but not like this. I personally like the idea of that because that get, allows them to shift away from this idea that the intelligence and and espionage is about these individual people who go around with guns and 
complexes and, mm. and do it all on their own and more to the idea that actually no it's teams that's yeah. how this thing works that as an idea eliminates the principle of the next James Bond will be a woman because yeah. it'll be no it's this 007 who's already passed the test exactly. with the audiences yeah. like they've already kind of gotten in there yeah. which means that the third and final and only other possibility is go back in time yeah. I've heard the 50s and I'm like whoa the 50s what was spying like in the 50s God, you know, but that was when Fleming set the books mm. it's just that they weren't adapted until the 60s so they could do that like kind of like X-Men First Class, which was itself modelled on kind of the early Bond films. Mm. Of those three, all three have the potential to be done really well mm -hmm. or really badly. Yes, they do. So I have no personal preference mm. as long as what they do comes off as intelligent and moves the series forward in a way rather than just resting on its laurels. Yeah. So obviously the first choice is the most risky of resting on... Like the tried and well, tested formula. Yeah, the 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 one I would be absolutely least interested in would be if they decided to go back to formula. Yeah. Hey, it's Tom Hardy as Bond. Okay, I suppose. But I guess we'll see, folks. As it is, um, Craig got to do what no other Bond actor managed to do in the past. Connery's last one was either Diamonds Are Forever or Never Say Never Again, depending on which of you, them you consider to be canon. Frankly, it's Never Say Never Again, which was a dismal retread of Thunderball, which itself is not the best Bond film, not even the best of his Bond films. Uh, Roger Moore did A View to a Kill, which was not fantastic. Lazenby was, Good song, though. Lazenby was in and out on one, mm. did a great one, but... It wasn't great because Nor of him. Nor get invited back. <laughs> but it wasn't great because of him. Timothy Dalton started great, and then there was a like license to kill. They didn't think that was the last one he was in. It was ridiculous that he should only play two. Mm. But then they, there you go. Pierce Brosnan got the absolute worst because they should have fucking better known better than Die Another Day. Die My Another Day. God, abysmal. That's the worst. So the bad. fact that he started so strong with Goldeneye mm. and finished with Die Another Day. It's yeah, like Tomorrow Never Dies is great. Yeah. World is not enough definitely has its strong points. Absolutely. We'll maybe cover them at some point in the, in the future. Mm. But yeah, Daniel Craig got to do a whole bunch of really great Bond over those five films. How about that? Rather than saying that one's good, that one's not. Mm. I also admire them for not hinting at the end in the trailer. Absolutely. Like, yeah. well done for not using that as a selling point. As a point. selling point, that, yeah. Is Bond going to make it through this one? Mm. Yeah. That, like, going in blind and, like, this was a rare experience for me that the trailers didn't give away everything and they had so long to say, to try and reinvigorate interest by going, well, we can give you this bit about the film. Mm. So, yeah, like I said, well done to them for that. That required restraint and it was risky. But the rewards they're reaping here are dignity and a sense of meaningful weight. School of Movies is brought to you by Patreon. Our top tier $15 sponsors get credit every episode, so thank you to Aaron Lecluse, Abel Savard, Alex Outridge, Angus Lee, Benjamin Hoffer, Brian Novak, Cassandra Newman, Chris Finnick, 
Christopher Wolfe, Kieran Dashler, Connor Kennedy, Dan Mayer, Daniel Salguero, Dan Hepner, Dave Hickman, David Sheely, Duran Barnett, Finbar Nicole, Frankie Punzi, Greg Downing, Jameis Enright, Jesse Ferguson, Joe Crow, Joel Robinson, Johan Clayson, Joe G, Josh Waster, Kevin Vahey, Lorraine Chisholm, Mark Luksh, Marty Huey, Matthew A. Siebert, Matthew Webb, Michael Hasco, Robbie Crow, Sarah Montgomery, Tim Rosensky, Timothy Green, Toby Jungius, Tom Painter, Trey Contreras, and Valencia Burns. So, that's it for us on uh, Bond for the time being. Since it's now the month of October, we'll be doing Halloween-related scary stuff, including the Castlevania Netflix series, which we've mentioned before, both Candyman films, ignoring the two crappy middle sequels, and Interview with the Vampire. But next week, we're going to be covering Marvel's What If. So we'll see you for that. I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And School's Out.
Nothing less, only.